Welcome to Rafa. I'm Lee West. I'm senior minister and founder of Rafa International, and we're glad to have you with us. I would encourage you to pull up our website, Rafa Ministries World. You'll find many things there that will be of interest to you, I believe. Also, you can look at our YouTube, Lee West Ministries, and there's some complimentary items there, such as out of our archives, some live preaching that we've uh, put on there for your edification. Also, there's some of our uh, video Bible Answer Man programs, complimentary. I think you'll enjoy those. So glad to have you with us. We're going to be looking into the subject today of death. Death, uh, a very provocative subject. It's troubling to many people, and yet it's enlightening to others and, and heartening to others. And we'll cover some of those aspects today. I would start off by saying and quoting scripture that's found in the very first sentence of the Bible. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The created word here is the Hebrew word bara, B-A-R-A, bara. And this is the only type of creation that can be attributed to God. It's a wonderful, extensive, supernatural creation aspect that God alone enjoys. It means by the implication of it that it, he, he created out of nothing. Of course, we understand from the other scripture that he did not create out of nothing because uh, he spoke everything into existence. So he created out of his spoken word and fashioned it by his hand. So there are other scriptures which complement it. In this first passage, we see God's creative function beginning to process. And I use the word processing because here at the very initial part of our understanding of how everything that there is that we can perceive and understand came into being. Before that, there was only God. And he opens the door at the creation process, and he begins creating. But the wonderful thing about it is that he built factors into that that will progress throughout his uh, uh, process of, of building the universe and peopling it. He begins with a principle of, that is embedded in it of entropy. It's a principle of physics, and it just simply means, means decay was built into the process. In Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 7, it says that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. The dust in this passage has to do uh, freely, it would be the word uh, ashes would be what the dust there means. And it this comes about because of the death and rebirth of stars that have that have died and then out of that chaos comes forth comes forth other stars and the ground there simply means soil but it means more than that than just soil it has the connotation of moist soil that which is soluble, which has moisture content to it. And embedded in that thought is the fact that this soil will be suitable for growing vegetables and vegetations. So it's a wonderful little word. Now, we know also that it says that Adam was uh, formed out of the dirt of the earth. So God went outside of Eden. 
He's selected what seems to be the implication from soil, from, from different parts of the world, and he formed Adam out of the ashes and grounds of the earth. Now, we can understand because of what we said just a moment ago that what Adam was formed out of was material that had a decaying process into it. It, it was decaying. And so Adam was not, was not formed to live forever. I know there are other ministers who teach that if Adam hadn't sinned, he would have lived forever. But that's not the case because he was built and fashioned out of material that had a decaying factor into it. And as Adam's seed, our bodies are decaying. That's why we uh, age. We our age shows as we grow older and. We can, we can translate that and extrapolate that into the fact that when a baby is born, it in fact begins to die then. So it's a process. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 17, and God is speaking here to Adam, and he says to him, out of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. And he goes on to explain that statement because there's a semicolon there. It says, for the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So God knew that the day that he ate it, he knew that Adam was going to eat of it. He said, the day that you do that, not if you eat it, but the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So God knew that Adam would eat the tree. And he says, that day you will surely die. And the Hebrew word there really means dying, you will die, you shall die. Hebrews 9 verse 27 uh, has an appendix to this thought, and it says, it is appointed unto man once to die. So individuals never know when that once is going to come into play. They have an appointed time, but no one knows that. And some people give the indication that they're going to live forever. And, the, and some people, they won't say that, but they feel that they're going to live forever. They, they refuse to accept the, the meditation, the fact that I'm, I'm going to die. It's a difficult thing for people to cope with. And so coping with the death sentence, uh, some just won't acknowledge that. The death sentence is, uh, sentence is present from, from birth into every person. It is an enemy why we can't think of that as a people. We just don't want to address that in our cognitive thinking because man is born in sin. He's alienated from God at birth. Every person after Adam, being Adam's seed, is born in sin. This is one of the things that the Bible tells us. Babies don't they face this in different ways. Babies do not face this in, in the way that adults do because babies of believers, those babies who are born to regenerated parents, born-again parents, are protected until the age of accountability under God's grace. At the age of accountability, then they become, when they recognize sin and they need a Savior, then they become uh, aware that they're in a death process, that they're alienated from God. So they recognize at that point that they need a Savior. Now, they may not understand the biblical definition of it, but they certainly understand the implication because God has put that into every soul. 
Now, babies of the unbelievers or unregenerated, I teach and believe, aside from what other ministers teach and believe, that these babies who are born to unbelievers, they just simply cease to exist. And I'm convinced of this because God just puts a soul into their bodies, but he does not put a spirit into those bodies. So when they die, they're not under the protection that believers' babies are, so they just cease to exist and they go back into the earth. So every baby is not protected under God's grace. Now, I know there are some who teach that, but if we had time, and this is not in this teaching, but I think I could delineate the fact that that, uh, this would be a, a very strong implication. Coping with the death sentence, some uh, unwise individuals, they do dangerous things, very unwise things. We see them on television. They present themselves into situations where they walk along a thin line between death and life, and they do unwise things and in precarious places that if one thing just happened to go wrong, then they would die or be killed. Now, I've seen these things happen. I've seen people put themselves into that kind of a situation. There are other people who cope with the death sentence because circumstances presents to them the the thought that maybe just suicide, that means self-killing, suicide, self-killing, might be the answer for their problem. Maybe because it's, it's terrible circumstances, that they're, that they're enduring, maybe financial crisis, maybe it's uh, uh, social problems that they just feel like they can't face for the actions that they've done, and they're willing to murder themselves. So that aspect of suicide would be considered murder, the taking of one's life, self-killing. Now, uh, here again, others teach that that is a mortal sin that can never be erased, and that God immediately sends that one into into hell. I don't accept that, that that is a blanket statement for people who commit suicide. I would say this about the other part, that there, within the built of man, there is a product which is called self-preservation. And there's times when a person in certain situations may feel that taking their own or submitting their life to possibly being killed, they're willing to self sacrifice themselves to get out of their circumstances. Let, let me just give an example. People who in a, in a raging inferno of fire, maybe that's on the fourth, fifth, or sixth floor of a building, and rather than stay and be burned alive, they would elect to jump out of the window and, and kill themselves that way rather than stay there and be burned alive. And there are many, many other examples which could follow that same train of, of thought. And in my estimation, God would take that into account. I do not consider that uh, murder. I think that would be self-preservation suicide. Coping with the death sentence, until one becomes born again or regenerated, they constantly deal with death, with this situation. John 16, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 8 says this, When he, that means the Holy Spirit, is come, he will reprove, that means convict, the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is what's going on behind the eyebrows in in the soulish part 
of every person who is unsaved. They deal with this again. They may not be able to delineate it. They may not be able to define it, but this is what's going on. They're constantly dealing, dealing with uh, and being convicted and reproved. The Holy Spirit is reproving them that they need to deal with the fact that they are, that they are in sin. That he's dealing with them about the fact that they need to be in right standing with God. And he, de- he's dealing with them on the fact that there is coming a judgment. So this is some of the things that, that petrify them, and they refuse to, ex- con- uh, to deal with the, the, death, the coping with the death sentence. Since Adam, every person now knows the difference between good and evil. God told Adam, the day that you partake of that tree, you'll become aware of the knowledge of good and evil. So pe- that's why people, they know when they're sinning. They knew the quality of their sin. They recognize the unregenerated. They need to, they need a savior. In other words, having a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, no people inherently know that that can give them a, a goodness in them. But they, they also know that within them, inherently they know this, that in them there's no good thing. No matter, they may try to do philanthropic uh, areas, but there's no good thing in an unregenerated person. People act upon their choices. Every person, regenerated and unregenerated, make decisions, and those decisions have consequences. The unregenerated, they can't do good deeds. There's nothing in them. They, they lie. Where they, they may not think they want to lie, but they can't. They're liars by nature. They have to lie. They have to cheat. They have to steal in various forms. That's just part of their nature as an unregenerated person. Now, the regenerated regenerated one, these are born-again people, their desire at the moment of, of accepting the Lord Jesus Christ, their desire is to live goodly, righteously, be in harmony with God. Mature Christians, we still make many mistakes, and sin just simply means falling short, not missing the mark of being righteous and holy all of the time with God. Though we have the capability to not sin, God can do that, but we still do that even as regenerated people. So choices do bring consequences. They bring them good or bad to both the unregenerated and to the regenerated people. As I said, the unregenerated, they can't, they they must do those, though they may not want to. They're still going to commit adultery. They're still going to do those, all those heinous things. That's in their nature because they're of their uh, father, the devil. That's what the way it was put in the scripture. But regenerated people, we are led by the Holy Spirit, and God continually warns us, and then he chastens those who step outside, and sometimes he has to sorely punish. Revelation 22, verse 11 says this, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And then there's a semicolon in, in the in the text, although it wasn't there in the original. But it goes on to define this, and it says, "And he that is holy, let him be holy still." What this is implying is that we need to deal with these things in this life, because at the moment of death, our spiritual state is sealed. If we die unregenerated, we live in that state forever. If we die regenerated, born again, we live in that state forever. There is no purgatory. There's some who teach that, that there's a second chance and maybe a third chance. And 
There's other ways to get to God. There's just not the Christ way. And God looks at the heart. And if it's a good heart, well, by definition, good, they can't be good. They say there's many ways to get to God. One way is as good as the other. No, it's not. There's only two options to people. You can either be regenerated and, and the death go to be with the Lord, or you can be remain ungenerated and go to hell. Now, if you're born, you are born in sin, meaning that you have to make at some point a conscious decision to accept the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and regenerated. A person who does nothing and never deals with that, they automatically because they're born in sin, they automatically live their life, die, and go to hell. There's only two choices. So the eternal state of unbelievers in uh, in Jesus Christ, they don't accept his sacrificial death. The unbeliever, they will be reunited with their body uh, after death for at some point. At the great white throne judgment, they'll be reunited with their old body and placed into the lake of fire for eternity. We can't, we, you know, we toss this word eternity around, but we really can't grasp that. Our minds are not capable of dealing with eternity, but it is for all of, of our existence, which will be forever. We're never going to be annihilated. We're going to live either in heaven or we're going to live in hell. There's other people that I... I would have some respect for them, and they teach that uh, that people just cease to exist. No, they don't cease to exist. They go on living in one of two places, heaven or hell. They, if, if they die unregenerated at the great white throne judgment, they're going to be raised and reunited with that sin-ravaged body. It may be deformed. It may be plagued by devastation from ravages of diseases. They're going to live with that. They will have unsatisfied lust, whatever that lust was. Maybe it was alcohol, theft. Maybe it was lying. Maybe it was uh, uh, debauchery. Maybe it was all any form of evil that you can think from, from the little slight, what we call slight sins in the life to the flagrant sins in the life that deform, deform the soul and the, and the body. They will continue that, and they will be aware that there is no escape. That, that they, they have no hope. There's no key to the door. They are locked into that forever. They will abide in total darkness. They, there will be no light whatsoever. Now, in our generation, we're the first one to really appreciate this to, to the fullest because we have technological advances now in equipment that no matter how dark the room or situation is, there's still enough light there where they can measure that with certain equipment. And we can see that, you know, you've seen that green light to show images. Uh, so there's still light there, but in hell, there will be no light. It will be total darkness. But what they will be able to do there is they'll be able to hear around them they won't be able to communicate with them, but they'll hear around them the, the cries and the anguish and mourning of, of the others who were there in hell with them. No communication, alone in darkness, and, and forever to be surrounded by that type of mental turmoil. And they are in mental turmoil and will be forever. They'll be totally alienated from God's influence. They didn't want it in life, and they won't have it there. They will be free in that aspect, from any leading and pleading by God. They will be strictly on their own. And though God will be 
aware of everything that's going on there and be part of that from a divorce standpoint, but he set that place in, in position as a torment. Hell, the Bible says, was never meant for mankind. It was only meant for the devil and his angels, but man is put there because of his sin and also to suffer for the great alienation that he's brought upon himself from God. And probably one of the worst things about over the physical thing is that they will never have a peaceful moment forever. Now, sometimes we can endure very painful things if we know that it's going to end. And sometimes by drugs or whatever, we can we can find a peaceful moment. But these in hell will never be able to find one moment of peace forever. The state of the regenerated person, those who are born again, their eternal state is much, much different. In 1 Corinthians 15, there's a wonderful insight as to what God has put into our being now for the believer. It says, O death, where is thy sting? That means like a pinprick. This this is where, where God gives people dying grace, dying grace. I have stood by the bedside of un. Uh, regenerated people when they die. And it is a totally different scene when you stand by the bedside of a saint of God who is dying. And at the moment of death, God gives them dying grace. And uh, Paul wrote to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to this thought. He says, we are confident and willing rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Absent and present is a time that really can't be divided of time. It's the, the, the feeling is this, it's absent and present, just even quicker than I can say that, because the time cannot be divided. And we carry these thoughts in us that we don't have any sting in us about death. And this become more pronounced to you as you grow older chronologically, but especially you grow older in the Lord, which isn't always tied to chronology. Uh, we, we know that we feel, we inherently feel that I don't fear death is the thought. It, it, it in fact is there's an enhancement drawing about dying and, and going to be with the Lord. I, I don't, I don't wonder, and I, I'm not in consternation about that transition from this life to what lies beyond. So that being absent from from the body and present with the Lord uh, is just a a good feeling that we can have within us. And at the moment of death, this is a wonderful thought, and it was a piece of revelation to me. I hope it will be to you. At the moment of death, I teach and believe that Jesus Christ himself comes to escort that saint into heaven. Jesus Christ himself comes to take that one spirit and soul to heaven to be with him, and they enjoy their spiritual body at that time, awaiting their physical body. Jesus uh, compliments this where he says in John chapter 14, verse 3, he said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am. There he uses the terminology for 
the personage of God, I am, the same thing he did in Genesis chapter 3, where I am, there ye may be also. So isn't that a sobering, wonderful thought that if, if we don't get taken in the rapture, and that's why the rapture is a wonderful teaching. I'm sorry more ministers don't preach on it nowadays. I haven't heard the sermon in it in a long time, but it's such a comfort to know that if we go by the way of death, there's no sting. And the fact that Jesus Christ, the most beloved thing in our life and ever will be in our life, will come himself and take us and escort us into heaven. Matthew 25 verse 21 says this, and this is what the believer is hearing now in their spirit and in their soul, where where Christ says that at the moment of death, we cope with that. These are probably the most endearing words that we'll hear and the first words I believe that we will hear after we go through the death process, and it says, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And then it goes on to explain that thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. And then wonderful words, enter thou into the joy of, of thy Lord. The word joy here means a joy that we have never experienced. We've had happy times and joyous times as we define those in this life, but we'll never know of the joy of being with the Lord and in the Lord and associated with the saints until we pass through that. That's why the sting of death doesn't bother us that much. That's why we don't worry about that process. While we, as we grow and mature in the Lord, we can embrace that. We tolerate the world. We tolerate world situations, but there's something within us that longs to go and be with the Lord. How do we know that? Because, uh, at the believer's moment of cessation of life in this earth, they, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, they know real peace. We've never known real and never can know real peace in this life. They have a perfect spiritual body awaiting the reuniting with their physical glorified body, but they walk in that spiritual body and within that is their spiritual soul and their spiritual spirit. They have perfect knowledge of all other saints. You don't have to be introduced to anybody in heaven. When you see them, you will know them. You will know them as they are, and they will know you as you are. You will never meet a stranger in heaven. And you will know your body, your uh, family members. You will know those who died in Christ. You will not remember those who did not die in Christ. Mothers who lost children uh, at, at uh, before the age of accountability, they will meet those children again, and they will they will have fellowship with those children. They will not know and remember the children uh, that they had before they were regenerated, before they were born again. They can have visitation rights with the Lord Jesus Christ any time they want to, for any type of time, quote unquote, that they want to. We'll be operating in different time frames then. We won't be limited to a 24-hour clock there as we are here. God's in charge of all time. That's a piece of wonderful revelation right there. They, they, will, they and we at that point will 
enjoy the taste of food that we've never tasted before. We've enjoyed the tasting of dainties in this life, wonderful vegetables and, and fruits and desserts and things, but we've never tasted what we're going to taste in heaven. They're going to have things that are going to be so marvelous to our taste buds that we'll just marvel at that. And the good thing is we can eat as much as we desire. We won't have to worry about gluttony. That'll never be a factor for us, and there'll be no getting fat from it. Enriching food will never make us fat. <laughs> oh, that's a wonderful thought. Also, be able to enjoy though. We'll know why God created us. A lot of people wonder, why am I? Why is all this going on? Why me? What, what am I here for? We'll know that purpose. God will reveal that to us. We'll know why we were born and what we're going to be doing for eternity. You're going to receive a new name. Maybe you do or do not like the name that you have, but the name that you will get them will be the perfect name because it will fit your nature, your personality, your calling, what God has for you, and you'll be perfectly satisfied that you, you, you'll love it. You'll love your new name, and everybody will know your new name, and it will define who you are and what you are and how you are and what God has in, in store for you. We will reside at that time in pure light. There again, we've never known pure light. We know artificial light. We even know the light from the cosmos, but we've never endured pure light because there will be uh, no darkness there. No darkness at all. It'll be pure light. No shadows. We, there won't be, we won't cast a shadow there. No shadows and no and no darkness at all there. Enjoy, enjoy knowing that sin is being totally destroyed. Here again, this is a spiritual truth of maturity. The older you get in Christ, there's an old song that the things of world grow of the world grow strangely dim, and and that's true as you mature in the Lord. This world starts losing its allure, and heavenly things become more desirable. So. We, we will be glad in knowing that uh, God is, is totally destroying the sin process and we'll take wonderful thoughts that there'll come a time shortly when there'll be no sin to have to deal with. And we've never known that before. In, he in heaven, at the, after the moment of death and coping with that, we'll never get tired. No weariness. No frustrations ever again. Isn't that a great thought? We'll, we'll never know that uh, that feeling of just being like the old quote-unquote worn out mentally and physically. We'll never know. We'll never be plagued by that again. We'll ever be growing in the Lord mentally. Mentally. God always will have something new for us to understand. When we get to heaven, we will we will begin a process of knowing everything fully. Well, not fully, because as I said, we're, we're at the fully at the time, but God always has wonderful new knowledge and understanding he's going to be giving to the saints. So we'll be growing in knowledge and understanding forever. And we will not remember the things that would plague us mentally. We'll not remember the unsaved loved ones that were left behind. We will not remember their, uh, our unholy past. All those things will never be brought up by God again. All the things we remember are the good times and the Lord and the fellowship that we have and the fellowship we're having in that heavenly realm. And here's a wonderful point of view. You'll forever 
be able to view things out of God's and from God's point of view. We don't understand that yet. I've just made a statement that we will never understand yet fully. I know we have a desire to do God's will, but we will then we will understand everything that has, is, and will happen from God's point of view, and we'll never disagree. We'll never debate him about it. It will never come up again. We will just know his point of view and totally agree with him, be in agreement with him forever. Revelation chapter 17 tells us believers are constantly in our spirits hearing wonderful words such as the Spirit, it means the Holy Spirit, and the Bride, that's the heavenly host, say, come. In other words, they're, they're beckoning this uh, in our souls and in our spirits, come home. There's a drawing to come home to that type of life that's enjoyed there, which is basically, as we can define it, the Zoe kind of life, that God kind of life, the kind of life that God has. God God never wrings his hands in wonderment. He, he never knows, uh, ha, never has to wonder how things are going to turn out. He knows that everything, even though it looks bleak and dark and there's much sin and pain and destruction, he, he knows the end from the beginning. We are to be encouraging one another about this type of future. Even now, that's what we should be doing, is encouraging one another. When we see a brother or sister in the Lord, and we should be witnessing some of this to the unsaved, although they can't grasp this. God hadn't put this in their soul to be able to grasp what we're talking about today. And if you're unsaved listening to this, it won't mean much to you, to you except the fact that God will be drawing you to accept him as Savior. But the regenerated one, the borns again one who are listening to this, and I suggest to listen to it many times so it can continue speaking to you, uh, we're going to be encouraging one another and should. If we see some, one of a brother or sister that's down a little bit in their, in their soul and not feeling quite up to it, say something about, oh, good times are coming. Take heart. God's not going to ever forsake us, leave us or forsake us in this life. And talk about some of these things that we're going to enjoy for eternity, the fellowship that we have as a believer. As I was thinking about uh, this teaching and letting it uh, get into my soul, I thought about some examples of those who have rejected Christ and his sacrifice, what it, can, what it produces in life if, if that goes unchecked and they remain in sin. I thought about the actor Rock Hudson. Rock Hudson, if you look at pictures of him in old movies when he was a young man, he was a handsome, he had the, the manly looking qualities, though we understood what his life was behind the cut behind the doors. But there he gave the appearance of being a wholesome man and and handsome and having very good control, but his life was out of control. And then we see what happens as that life progressed, and we see pictures of him when he was old and ravaged by AIDS and how he looked then and sin had taken its toll on him. That's what happens in a, in a life. Satan will use you, and then he'll discard you. That's, that's what's happened. I thought also about a person, I don't know why I chose this person, but it just came to my mind, Adolf Hitler. And his name is a revulsion to many. 
And I decided when I when I thought I, I needed to look at the at the background of this individual. So I did some research into him. And what I found was as a young boy, he, he came in from poverty. He he had a, the problem of of uh a real problem when he's growing up with his father and with his with his parents. He was uh he had his own mind, highly motivated. But there, there's some good about that. And he started out with like two strikes against him, as the old saying had, uh, said. But he was bright and he was a very inquisitive boy. He was extremely motivated. And something I didn't know, he sang in the church choir and had a close relationship with the abbot in that church. And he evidently got a lot of ministry in, from religious scripture. So he was dealing with that, uh, and I see some of that in his uh, in his older life when he rejected all of that and things developed. But I saw as he began to incline, be inclined to uh, patriotism and and moral fiber within his country. It, it was it was in his babyhood, but he was drawn toward moral inclinations and patriotic pride. And also, he had a strong desire for national unity. And we can see some of that later on in his life, too, as that was perverted. But he, he began to fall apart mentally in the, in the patriotic thing. He saw, he saw that not being fulfilled, and he wanted to fulfill that. And the moral inclination of that, and he, he picked this out. I'm sure there was others. But he picked that out, and he attributed that to the Jewish community. He, when he looked at the uh, the sentiments of his day, and when he looked at the plays of his day, and when he saw publications, he he saw that they were in many, most cases. I'm, I'm sure he probably isolated on those, but he saw those as being authored by Jewish authors and producers, and he he began to grow from ambivalence to the Jew to hatred of the Jew, and he went through that process. Uh, much of this was true in his life, but God says this, and this was operating behind the scenes in Hitler. In Genesis 12, I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. Now, the Jew as a people can do some un unpleasant things, but that prophecy is still there. And so when people deal with the Jew, they have to be very careful. Certainly, we don't have to condone everything that Jewish nation does, and we shouldn't do that because the Jew now, they have to accept the Lord Jesus Christ on an individual basis, just as any other Gentile does. But God, there's coming a time when God's going to, after horrendous circumstances, he's going to deal with them as a nation again, and as a nation, they will accept the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're going to have to endure some horrible times before that comes, but now they have to deal with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. They can't deal only with their heritage. Hitler grew in philosophy to accept that, and I, and I, I gained a lot of this from his book, Mein Kampf, and I'm quoting from Hitler, and in this book he said this, when reason is exhausted, force and intimidation is required. There we can see what was behind the man. When reason is exhausted, force and intimidation is required. He had a gift of, 
of arguing uh, a principle or a thought. He could do that. He could have been a very good lawyer because he had that quality. And he people was, were drawn to him. He had a magnetic personality in that people were drawn to him and his linguistic ability drew people further to him. But I think what finally sealed his fate was that he totally em, uh, embraced the thought of Librestrom. That means a living space. And he felt by drawing that to collusion, it had been an old term around for a long time. And he perfected that because it meant that those of the Germanic race, they were and should exterminate all others in, in beginning where they were and radiating outward. They would exterminate by starvation or murder all those who were not of the Germanic race. That's why they took Austria and, and places like that. Poland, because uh, they, they were they were uh, the Aust uh, Austrian race they felt were part of the Germanic race. The Polish people they they looked at them as they did the Jews in in a different light. So that's why when we look at that aspect of of Hitler, that he was not only going to work in in that part of Europe, he was going to radiate out to a world conquest and a co. Of course, we know that. Anybody who tries to do that, any movement that tries to do that, God is not going to honor that. There's only going to be one king over the earth, and that's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of these who've tried to do that, the Napoleons of the world, the Hitlers of the world, the communists of the world, uh, and now the Islamic world, they're never going to make it. They're never going to make it because they're going to be warring with God, and only the Lord Jesus Christ will ever be able to do that. In closing, I thought of three circumstances that uh, that really, these three, I thought about Rock Hudson and Hitler. And the, the last one is, I thought about the uh, the painting of the Lord's the last, last Supper, rather, by Leonardo da Vinci, his painting of the Last Supper. Now, in, in looking at painting that, he went about trying to find models to to be the apostles and one to be Judas and one to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He had little trouble finding those for the apostles, but he had tremendous problems finding those that would model the Lord Jesus and, and, uh, and Judas. And he was walking down the street one day and he saw this saintly looking angelic looking face. And he said, Oh, there's my Jesus. So he approached the young man and asked him if he would pose uh, and let him paint him as the as Jesus, and the young man did, and, and and Da Vinci used him to paint Jesus, and the painting was almost complete, but he was still having trouble finding Judas, and he took a quite a while to find Judas. He never could find just the person that was exactly right, and one day he saw this person that was ravaged by sin. He looked like the dregs of evil. And he approached the guy and he says, how about posing for me as my Judas in my painting? And the guy says, yes, I'll do that. But you need to know that you painted me before. And Da Vinci said, I did. He says, yes, you use me as your model for the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't, doesn't that show you in Rock Hudson and Hitler and in this painting, what sin will do if it's left unchecked? To the world's population, there is an end of invitation to experience joy unspeakable and full of glory.
That's our message to the world that they can have. We need to warn them, certainly. But we could tell them, you can know this. One side of the curtain, there's what we experience now. It's it's degradation, it's pain, it's suffering, it's mental anguish. On the other side of the curtain, there's this joy unspeakable and full of glory. And the catalyst to achieving, uh, achieving this invitation is profound, and yet it's very, very simple. If we yield to that voice that we hear, if you're unregenerated, this is the voice that you hear all the time. That's the voice that the unsaved hear in times of anguish. They hear that voice in times when they can't seem to face circumstances, when things never seem to go right or never end, when they have been deceived and deserted and they're all alone and feel that terrible loneliness that sometime we can feel in the middle of a crowd, we can be all alone. When the question is begged, what's next? What's next in my life? The eternal answer to this is to yield to that voice that we hear in that time. And the answer is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt, strongest word that God could use, thou shalt be saved. It's been a joy being with you today. I encourage you to look at our website and the YouTube. Until we meet again, I pray the Lord will bless you richly.